The We Are Wakefield podcast, produced by Starda Media, creating content to wow your audience. Welcome to the We Are Wakefield podcast. I'm Claire Southerly, Managing Director of We Are Wakefield, and this is episode five. Today, we're joined by Adrian Sparforth, Managing Director of Sparforths, and Mark Lynham, Corporate Director for Regeneration and Economic Growth at Wakefield Council. We talk Wakefield District's past, present and future, and how the two organisations shape the way we live, work and play. Welcome to episode five of the We Are Wakefield podcast. Um, Today, we're joined by Adrian Sparforth, Managing Director of Sparforths, and Mark Lynham, Corporate Director for Regeneration Economic Growth at Wakefield Council. So welcome to you both today. Welcome to Starter Media. Thank you. Um, So I think, first of all, we're going to come to you, Adrian. So what we normally do on the We Are Wakefield podcast is just let you introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about you. So who's Adrian Sparforth? Good afternoon. Hi, I'm Adrian Sporforth. I'm Chartered Architect, Chartered Town Planner, um, Master Planner. Lived in Wakefield virtually all my life and the business was founded here in Wakefield in 1988. We've been going for 30, 35 years. Um, we, uh, a very short period of time, went to Wake University to study and then came back again. And, and really just operated around Wakefield as architects, planners and master planners for the first 10 years of my career and then started to expand out and grow and develop. And now we work throughout the UK. So from a historical point of view, then, I know that you've got a bit of a history that goes beyond Sparforth in Wakefield. So your family have traded in Wakefield for... 1650. 1650, wow. We moved from just outside uh, Harrogate, the village of Spofforth. Right. And in 1650, the family, for some reason, decided to head south. They didn't get very far. They got to Wakefield. They arrived at Warmfield. Um, Robert Spofforth settled in Warmfield. And um, the vicar wrote our name down wrong. Right. So he wrote it phonetically rather than as Spofforth. So we should technically be Adrian Spofforth and we should be Spofforths, but we're not. We are Spofforths because he wrote it S-P-A-W-F-O-R-T-H, which is the very first thing I learned to say as a child. I couldn't spell, I couldn't read, but I heard my parents on the phone going S-P-A-W-F-O-R-T-H. <laughs> and so and I knew that before I knew anything. So that was, um, and now in my um, what, 35 years on the office, I wander around the office on a daily basis here and the team go S-P-A-W-F-O-R-T-H. <laughs> <laughs> but so it should be spelled S-P-O-F-F-O-R-T as in the village of Spofforth outside Spofforth. Harrogate. Spofforth. I yeah. think I prefer Spofforth. I do. It's exclusive. It yeah. is, isn't it? It is. It <laughs> there is. aren't many of it's us. It's just for you. It's just for you. So what's your journey been and what's the journey of, of Sparforths as as architects and the business itself. How did you get to where you are today? I, I my father's an architect planner. He, uh, when I was tiny, uh, we used to live in Morley for a few years, and at the age of two, apparently, I said to my mother, she said, "What would you like to be when you grow up?" And I said, um, "I'd like to be an architect, like my dad." or a drain layer, because apparently there was a drain layer in the road outside. So it was either architect or drain layer. That that was the the career choices, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. By the age of six, I doubled down. 
I'd worked out by the age of six I really actually wanted to be uh, a planner because apparently planners were allowed to look at bigger pictures um, because my father's an architect planner. So uh, when I went to school at the age of six, they said, what would everybody like to be? And my friend said, I want to be an astronaut. Another one said, I want to be an actor. Somebody else wanted to be um, a race car driver, I think. Someone was a train driver, all the usual stuff. And I I want to be a town planner. And basically, I got 12 years of ribbing. (laughs) But interesting, of those, I think I'm the only one who actually ended up doing the thing that he said he wanted to be at the age of six. I was going to ask you that. Do you still know these school friends? And did anyone become an astronaut? No, 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 no. no. (laughs) At least you had real aspirations. That's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing. So, obviously, you went away to study, came back. So... Sparforths was already there. That was your father's business, was it? He, I got a phone call in 1988. I was working in Nottingham for a firm of architects down there. And uh, the phone rings and my father said, I've got a cunning plan. Um, I'm thinking of very moving baldric. on. Very, very baldric, yeah. actually, yes, because yeah. it was very cunning. Yeah. And the idea was to um, leave Wakefield Council as chief planning officer. And he was going to set up as a plan consultant. Okay. And uh, so the phone call comes and he said, have you ever thought about doing a master's, in t- um, finishing your master's off in town planning? And I said, uh, I was going to do it next year. And he said, well, while you're uh, thinking about doing that, why don't you have a summer job with me and just help me set the business up? So um, bring your own pens and your drawing board, because literally we had nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was bring, bring a drawing board, bring some pens, join for the summer. And this was summer 88, and I'm still there. So just for, um, I mean, I know we've had lots of conversations, so I'm probably more in the know, but for someone who doesn't know what a town planner does, yeah, what does a town planner do? That was the challenge we faced for the first 10 years of our business, actually, because mm. I still do it to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, people assume town planning is the that thing that the local authority does. And our profession really has developed over time because we, instead of this being a, it's about directing and managing economic development, where economic development goes. That's, right. that's the broad definition of town planning. So a, a planner and the planning process is about directing and managing um, the delivery of economic development. <coughs> In reality, that, that's more than just saying yes and no to planning applications. It's about coming up with a strategic vision for a place. And every local authority in the whole of, whole of the UK has to have a strategic vision, and they call it a local plan. And so once you've got a strategic vision and you've set that out and you've consulted everybody and said, this is our great vision for our place, and Wakefield's got one and most towns and cities now have one, um, the, it, these are quite can become quite com- complicated. So when you apply for applying permission for a development, you design it. Most people know what an architect does, designs a scheme, yeah. submits a scheme. Um, but by the same token, that scheme has to be accord with that local authority's plan or vision for its place. Mm-hmm. And over successive governments, planning has become more and more complicated. Okay. Uh, too complicated, in my view. Mm-hmm. Way too complicated. It's highly inaccessible. People don't understand how it works. And that has led to the need for planning consultants, that's private sector planners, to interpret and advise clients so that they can understand whether or not the scheme is likely to be approved by the local authority. Right. Um, but I would argue, and I'm going to try and talk myself out of a job here, had we had our profession got it right, we shouldn't have to do what we do because the planning process should be so straightforward, should be so understandable, and should be so um, um, transparent that everybody should be able to go, I can prepare, submit, and negotiate my own planning application. So who are your clients then? 
everybody from house builders, developers, um, land promoters, people who want to have that land included in the local authority's vision. So they may mm. say, how do we get our land included in, in Wakefield's vision for the Wakefield district? Right. And so um, farmers, landowners will say, we would like um, to, to tell the local authority why we think our land in, our, in this area should be included. Um, and sometimes we're successful at that, sometimes we're not. But um, so landowners and farmers, developers, house builders, and then right the way through to the other end of the spectrum, specific individuals. So we've done individuals want to build their own home. People want to build their own prime, um, doctor surgeries. People want to build schools. Mm. So we work from the very big and the very strategic working. Um, the biggest we're doing is a couple of new towns. We've got two new garden villages we're designing and large urban extensions like we've seen at Wakefield East and, and other places around the region. Um, and then right at the other end, we've got some one-off houses that we're doing for people, which are uh, just as interesting, just as exciting, and actually in many ways more rewarding because they're immediate and you're dealing with people yes, uh, as opposed yeah. to you know, very, 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 very large, um, complex, time-consuming projects. So tell us about the Sporforths team. So how many staff have you got within the team and what's a, a typical day at Sporforths? What's going on? We've got between, at any time, between 20 and 30 staff. We have had a lot more actually, but we've found in order for the directors to remain active and in on, on the tools effectively mm-hmm. doing the job we found that, that 20 to 30 staff uh, it means we can be um, involved in the day-to-day running of the, of the actual projects themselves and not just become administrators uh, we're divided into three disciplines we have um, strategic uh, planners and uh, short-term planners we've got big picture planners who look at the new towns and the garden settlements and all that, and that sort of thing we have architects designing one-off buildings and then we have a sort of um, charter surveyors and master planners in the middle that will do more of the large-scale master planning. So it's a nice mix. So um, we call it zooming in and zooming out. So we have a team that can zoom right out and look at a whole region and identify long-term strategic opportunities. But we also have a team that are really good at the detail and laying the trains yes. and could do the detail and literally go on site and build stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to be able to sort of I say zoom in, zoom out. Yeah, yeah. So it's very varied then the the, the types of oh, it's wonderfully work varied. that you take on. Yeah. But it has mm-hmm. to be, I think, we've been go- because we've been going for so long, 30, 30 60 years, this is our 36 year you have to kind of keep freshening it up. Mm. And so if you haven't got the variety, I think we would get bored. Our team would get bored. Our clients would then realise that we were bored. And before you know it, you end up effectively going um, going backwards. Yeah. So for us, it's about keeping it fresh, keep, keeping it interesting, keeping it vital. Um, and because we enjoy what we do, and we do, and I enjoy it today as much as I did 35 years ago, and probably more so actually. Because we enjoy it, I think the team enjoys it. And therefore, hopefully, you hope that translates into clients feeling that they're getting a good, uh, a good service. Absolutely. It's so yeah. important, isn't it, yeah. to enjoy what you do? Yeah. So what challenges would you say that, that you faced as a business? Surviving 35 years. Absolutely. That is the principal achievement, really. Uh, the, uh, I think we're unusual. I hadn't realised how unusual we were for the directors. My co-director, David, and I have worked together for 35 years. And we're starting to realise that's quite... Not normal. <laughs> just, Unfortunately, that's, yeah, that's absolutely yeah. the case. So what do you think set you aside from those that have fallen by the wayside over the years? Do you think it is that keeping it fresh or being able to change the way you look at things regularly? I think we're both quite competitive and we compete against each other. And do it you? keeps us fresh. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, healthy you know, competition. Have healthy internal competition, yeah. I think, is helpful. Um, and we, also, and we, we are friendly uh, to each other. I think you, if you don't get on with your colleagues... 
you are eventually going to splinter and fracture and, and go your separate ways. So yeah. the, 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 at the heart of the business is actually for directors who, who get along. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, and because we get along, it keeps momentum going. And then every few years, we reckon we re- reinvent the business every seven years just to keep it fresh. And we never we don't sit out and say every seven years we're going to reinvent this business. There seems to be a rhythm to it. About every seven years, probably coinciding with the economic cycle, we tend to go, hmm, Maybe we should be heading this direction now, and that keeps us fresh and gives us another impetus, gives yeah. us more energy for yeah, another. Being on the yeah. ball for yeah. Yeah. You know, what's needed. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, I wanted to just touch on with you a little bit about We Are Wakefield because mm. you, along with Wakefield Council, actually, were one of the founder members of Wakefield Bondholders, as mm. it was then. So I'm asked a lot. Um, sort of the history of We Are Wakefield. What is it? Where did it come from? So I thought I'd get the story from the horse's mouth mm. today and maybe I it, I think it might have been um, sort of Chinese whispers over the years, you know, so what, how, how did it evolve? What was the initial intention of Wakefield bondholders and, and what's the brief story up to today? It, it came out of the back of the financial crash. 2008, 2009, and it was a combination of Peter Box and Denise Jeffries, um, obviously the leader of the council now. Denise um, and Peter recognised that coming out of the financial crash, the public and the private sector were kind of in it together, which was an expression that was going around at the time. We're all in it together. We need to work out how on earth we we come out the other side. So there was a phone call um, as so often it happens with Denise, where Denise Jeffries calls up and she says, Adrian, would you like to come along and give some support to an idea we're having? We're going to have a bit of an event down at the Hepworth and we'd like you just to basically be in the audience and say, uh, and, and lend your support as a local business to maybe public-private working and we're going to call it Wakefield Bondholders. And I said, that's absolutely fine, Denise, not a problem at all. And then a couple of days go by and I get another phone call. Hello, it's Denise again. Hello, Denise. She says, uh, Adrian... Uh, I don't think you could say a few words, could you? And just maybe lend some some verbal support to this. And I said, of course I can. Because I like Denise very, very much and I've got a lot of time for her. I said, of course, of course Denise, I'll, uh, I'll send a few words and uh, and talk about Wakefield. And a few more days go by. And she says, another phone call. She says, hey, do you mind coming to stand at the front? Maybe give a short presentation <laughs> on, on how, how it might work. And while you're at it, would you entertain the thought of maybe sitting on a steering group? And I said, well, okay, Denise. That's so not, it escalated not quite quickly. Yeah. And by yeah. the time we arrived there, I think I was actually walking up to give my short presentation. She says, you wouldn't entertain actually um, maybe being deputy chair of the group, would you? So I'd <laughs> gone from... <laughs> so we sort of, mo- the role morphed. And, uh, and that's basically how we ended up there. The intention really was to in the early days to find a way of the private sector engaging with the public sector to promote Wakefield because yes. it was at a time when inward investment was quite low generally and it was quite competitive to get people to go, come to Wakefield, please come to Wakefield, please, please come to Wakefield. So that really effectively was bondholders. It was a, it was essentially the public and private sector coming together going, um, please come to Wakefield and invest in Wakefield. Uh, we realised very, very quickly that we hadn't got a, a consistent script that we were all saying nice, positive things about Wakefield, but we weren't consistently saying the same things. So I might, somebody might say, Adrian, why, why should we come to Wakefield? And somebody else may say, uh, Peter, Peter Box, why should we come to Wakefield? And we were all saying slightly different things. Mm-hmm. And so we realised we needed to develop a, a coherent, consistent script. So when you heard it from 20 people, we were all basically saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and so we became more of a marketing organisation 
and and therein lay the challenge then for it. The bondholders in those first two or three years, we had to pivot very quickly into becoming almost a marketing front end without at the same time tripping over the council who were doing a really good job. So the so wait for council were being really good at what they did and we were the private public part of that messaging. So we were trying to sort of complement, not compete with. Yes. Uh, and at the same time, we're trying to take the, the business community with us, who at the time had got a lot of money, because we were coming out of a financial crash. Mm-hmm. There was not a lot of cash around. So we're saying, you got a five, you got a ten, or you got a hundred quid. And we had to find ways of getting all these little pots of money together to create enough money to do some reasonably effective marketing. Uh, and so we built, we built it fairly quickly. We got to about a hundred members. But the challenge that we faced was then maintaining momentum in those early days. And and keeping forward momentum going at a time when there was not a lot of cash around. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we 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 did okay for a while, mm-hmm. um, and then we pivoted. We had a choice: we could continue to do marketing as Wakefield bondholders, or we could step back and try to be more strategic. Now, bondholder organisations historically have been more strategic. They've, they've, they've stood back and they've tried to say, this is the strategic direction we would like to see our town or city go over the next 20 years. That was an interesting challenge for us at, t- at the time, because in order to have that conversation, it's a long-term conversation. Yeah. And it's very difficult to say to a small business, please, can we have your money to talk about a benefit that might not come about for another 10, 20, 30 years? Um, so, and then, so, so the organization got into a, into a position where it, it couldn't work out whether or not to continue to be a marketing front end or whether it, for, for the, uh, the public-private partnership, or whether it should try and become this more strategic organization. And that's at the point where we kind of went it was a pause right <laughs> uh, and at that point other things were happening in the development industry which pulled me away into much bigger projects at work yes um, and i suppose it was about a 12 18 month period of time before it then morphed into what is now we are wakefield right uh, so that was that the, the, that moment in time where we had to make a choice marketing our strategic long-term direction mm-hmm. and try to take the business community with us yeah so what do you think of the organization that it is today please say nice things I think it's fantastic. I think you've done really, unbelievably well because there was that moment. If you say, "Well, what was your, the thing that you were most um, most successful, least successful about?" There was a moment in time when I thought the, the bond tellers could have been the least successful thing we'd done. Right. There was that moment there. We sort of we left the money in the account. We, we were there was a lot of pressure on us to spend the money that was in the bank account at the time. Yes. Uh, and we went, "No, no, 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 we can't. It's not our money. It's the members' money. We have to make sure that money's available for whoever comes next." Uh, and I just hope we just hoped uh, as a group of directors that whoever picked it up and ran with it will be able to use that money to good effect and take it forwards. Mm-hmm. And um, to those that came between uh, the old board of directors stepping down and the new board coming in and then yourself, Claire, it's been uh, hopefully um, we left it in a reasonable enough state to like to pick the ball up and run with it and do some fantastic stuff now. And I really do think when we, we're out talking uh, to immediate investors now, we do sing about we, where we are wakeful all the time, saying, well, look, there's this great um, local authority. It's a great location. It's a great place to be and to live and to work. But we've also got this incredible um, um, business community, which really is pulling together and working together. And when uh, uh, the more cynically when investor says to you, yeah, I can prove it. We can go where we can. Look yeah. at we are Wakefield and just look mm. how it's going from strength to strength. Well, that's a massive compliment. Thank no, you. Well done. Yeah. No, I really appreciate yeah. that. And it's good to hear the the history of where it came from as well, because I do get asked about that quite a lot. One of the most common questions is, what does a 
bond holder. What's a bond holder? What does a bond holder mean? And yeah. I can't answer that actually. The original idea of the bondholder was that we would one would one would effectively have a bond purchase a bond in, um, and that bond would be effectively a stake in the future of the town or the city. I see. So we would all be bondholders, holders of bonds in the place. Mm-hmm. That sense of uh, having commitment, be it financial or emotional commitment, to bond with a place, mm-hmm. so that that would then give you uh, a sense of well, it's my city, it's my town, it's my community. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That was the notion of the yeah. bondholder. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to some fi- uh, financial bond that might hold mm-hmm. in, uh, in terms of stocks and shares and things. It was, uh, Interesting. Yeah. That's cleared that one up then. <laughs> <laughs> I've only been in the job 18 months, but thank uh, no. <laughs> Interesting. So I'm going to come over to you, Mark. So welcome. Thank you. Um, so just tell us about yourself and your journey, because if I'm right in thinking you're not originally from Wakefield... Does the accent give it away? A little bit. Yeah, I thought it might do a little bit. It's a, it's a Midlands accent, so it's definitely okay. an old West Yorkshire accent. So um, so I, I've been at um, at Wakefield Council a little over two years now, which has gone incredibly fast. And um, so I have, in my current role, I have responsibility for... All of the regeneration functions, um, economic development, skills, adult community learning, as well as uh, some of the planning work we do, um, very much kind of uh, overlaps with Adrian's world, uh, as well as all of our arts, culture and leisure work as well. So leisure centres, libraries, uh, all of our arts work around um, uh, our year, which we're planning on next year, big celebration of culture across the district. So... So those are the, the kind of functions I'm responsible for. So um, as I say, I've been at the council a little over two years now. And prior to that, my career has largely been within the public sector. So I was at uh, South Yorkshire Combined Authority before that, working very closely with the elected uh, Metro Mayor there. Barnsley before that, Nottingham before that, and a number of other authorities before that. Um so you know, my career has very much followed a path around public policy, regeneration and development. And I think the, the thing is, what I am enjoying now is being back at an authority that is doing some really exciting on the ground regeneration. My previous role was very much a, a regional policy role, very much engaging with government, which was hugely exciting when, you know, when you're in meetings with government ministers, you, you know, yeah. it, you do get a sense that you are able to influence things. But, uh, you know, I am at my heart somebody who likes to see change happening in places Um and the role I'm in at the moment very much gives me the ability to do that and influence that. So, yeah, definitely not a West Yorkshire accent, though, which just give me away a little not bit. Not a wakey lad. Not a wakey lad, but, I'm afraid. But you're now adopted, I think, fully adopted within yeah. w- within Wakefield. I certainly don't have the 16th century heritage no, that Adrian talks about anyway. isn't it? Yeah, just a little bit, so, yeah. So tell us about the journey. So... What did little Mark Lynham want to do then? What, what, what were your aspirations? Apart from either being a footballer or astronaut, right. the usual cliches yes. anyway. Yeah. The, the funny thing is I was reflecting on this the other day and um, I, I grew up in a uh, small coal mining community in uh, North Nottinghamshire. Um, and from a very early age... Growing up in that kind of environment at a period of dramatic change, particularly during the 80s, 
Um, it instills in you a certain sense of social value and beliefs about what places should be and how they should represent the people that live there. And, you know, coal mining communities very much, you know, like Wakefield used yes. to be, a strong sense of place and identity. And I grew up very much in that type of community. And I remember from a very early age, um, sitting there being fascinated by the development of the place I lived in. Uh, as one industry was coming to an end, what replaced it? How do we still instill a degree of pride in this place? And what does it become next? What it's got the potential to be? And I remember sitting there um, as a kid, um, you know, not necessarily being interested in kind of reading football magazines, but actually getting together bits of A4 paper. And I vividly remember doing this, sticking these bits of A4 paper together, drawing this massive map of the town I lived in and started to plan out what I thought it should be. Really? So, yeah, absolutely. How old were you when you were doing I, I, this? I probably barely secondary school age, if That's that. remarkable. And it, it was just, it, <laughs> I, I vividly remember doing this. I can vividly remember sat in my parents' lounge on the floor, sticking these A4 bits of paper together trying to create a big bit of paper where I could kind of design out the place and think and imagine what it could be. You know, shops were closing, what could replace it, what could replace the, the former pit. And absolutely fascinated uh, from, from that point onwards about placemaking. What, what, how can we change places and their huge potential? And um, I sort of kind of drifted away from that eventually because the practicalities of getting a little bit older, trying to wonder what you want to do in your career kind of gets in the way. And, you know, I went to, I, I left, um, I left the community I grew up in and went to Newcastle to study, mm -hmm. uh, first of all, at university, did a bit of a mixture of politics, economics and IT, still probably without any sense of what did I want to do or be. Finished that, went and worked for a, for a year, then went back into academia, probably went to hide back in academia, to be honest, because it's an easy place to go. I'll just kind of go and study for another year and I, I'll butt off worrying what I actually wanted to yeah. do. And I went to do international relations because I was interested in politics. Um, again, growing up in that type of community, in you do sort of get embedded in, in politics in one shape or another. Um, and so I went to study international relations. I, I don't know. I, I probably kind of had some wild aspiration to go and work for MI6 or something right, okay. and go and do, be, do, do some international spy uh, job. But, you know. Uh, you see how that's more believable. Yeah. Than what, the drawing than stuff? Drawing the maps. No, well, I'm going to be James Bond. I'm not yeah. sure about that. Anybody who knows me, that's a highly unlikely. Um, but, um, and then you, I kind of find my way back to it. You, I'm a great believer in the fact that you you eventually find your way back or towards something you either are good at or something you enjoy. Mm. And I eventually find my way back into a career which was around a mix of community development, placemaking, economic development. And only at that point, after working for a few years within economic development, <clears throat> did I eventually decide, actually, I should probably have a qualification which sort of relates to the job I do. So I went back and studied for uh, a part-time MSc at Sheffield Hallam um, in, in urban and regional planning. <clears throat> so I am, I, 
I am a, a non-practicing planner, if you like. Um, it sounds like I'm a kind of recovering planner, but not uh, Adrian will relate to that. A non-practicing planner. Um, yeah. because there's, you know, there's massive similarities. Oh, absolutely. There, isn't there? Yeah. 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 So uh, and that was a, about fifteen years or more ago now. And my career has followed that path across public policy, economic development, um, through to regeneration and planning and what I do now. And and I, I guess that's why I love the role I do here in Wakefield is it encompasses all of the stuff that I actually enjoy and I'm and, and very passionate about, not only my background around regeneration, but planning culture leisure all of those fundamental place making functions are actually within my area of work so you know if, if somebody had to a few years ago said you know design a job which just includes the stuff you really enjoy mm -hmm. none of the stuff you really don't like doing this would probably be it so, i can relate to that yeah. yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah so it's interesting i mean the i suppose you've got the pull of you know your early years as well with the, the sort of coal mining yeah. village town background and we've got so much of that here within the district haven't we mm. you know i mean i'm a, a coal miner's daughter myself castleford originally we've got all the um outlying villages now that are still really recovering from those years mm. where where the pits closed so what can we expect to see as a district what what can you tell us will what are the benefits going to be for the future of the Wakefield District? Yeah. So I think the way you've articulated there is exactly where the heart of the challenge is. You know, you've got, you've got communities who were designed and built for a particular purpose around a particular industry. They, they haven't got a long back history of being there for any other reason than to serve one particular industry. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've worked in many places, some actually who have got much more entrenched challenges than some of the communities in Wakefield, where you do away with that fundamental reason for being, um, and they're completely lost. There is no other reason for that community mm. to exist. And that is not a challenge that can be addressed overnight. That's a generational challenge. It's not a generation. It's probably two, you know, two generations of challenge yeah. to try and reinstill a kind of purpose of what a community is there to do. Um, and, you know, I think Wakefield over a number of years has succeeded in various ways of reinventing itself very successfully in a lot of ways. And and it's still on that journey, but it's pointing in the right direction. And, you know, as, as Adrian talked a little bit about earlier, the importance of, of good placemaking and planning as part of that is absolutely critical to making that happen because... Whilst a lot of people have various differing views on it, Wakefield as a district has benefited hugely over the last 10 years, particularly in the growth of logistics, because we are all both, you know, places are subject to the geography. You know, mm -hmm. they are both victims and um, beneficiaries of the geography with it, which they are. And Wakefield has hugely fantastic um, transport links M62 M1A1 and um, logistics thrive on that connectivity so you know after you know, due to good um, foresight in terms of the place making and planning over the last 10-20 years Wakefield has seen a massive growth in that kind of logistics use um, so it has started to reinvent itself in that way based upon its geography in the first place but it's got a lot more 
to do and a longer journey to go on than that to try and transform it even further and what we've seen around the culture and creative industries which continue to thrive the tile yard development former rutland mills down by the colder is a perfect example of that what's going on down in the southeast with production park some really exciting fantastic work going on around these high value high-end industries and that's the next step that's the next thing for wakefield to focus on really but not forgetting where it's come from uh, and reinforcing the economic base it can now build from around those kind of new industries and I suppose we've got new challenges that have that have come up since, you know, going back to industries uh, being there, you know, no longer and no future in certain industries. We've got the the challenges that everyone's facing now in that we've had a global pandemic. Sustainability is a massive challenge now, and that's got to be, you know, the central focus mm. and, and sort of run the thread running through everything we do. How do you as a local authority and, and, and you within your role, how do you begin to overcome the challenges that have been put before us in the last yeah. five, 10 years? Yeah, uh, it, it, hugely challenging. And they go beyond my personal brief within the authority and local authorities and Wakefield's no different has gone through a massive period of change and flux over the last 10 plus years. Um, partly due to the austerity years, um, but also COVID and the challenges uh, around inflation at the moment are driving us back to the challenges that we had to face probably five, 10 years mm -hmm. ago uh, and the pressure on public services. Um, and Wakefield's no different to a lot of other places in terms of pressure on adult social care, pressure on children in care, huge costs of authorities like Wakefield. Um, but not things that we can, what, which we can choose to do. These are things which we absolutely must do. Mm -hmm. We absolutely must provide adult social care because at any point in our lives, we will engage with the adult social care system in one way or another, absolutely. whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. So we, it needs to be there. It's like the NHS. It is that important that it needs to be protected. And children in care in the same way. You don't have a choice to look after children. It is something that a, any you know sane society would choose to do and would want to do so these are not options available to us but that inevitably puts pressure on other parts of what local authorities are there to do particularly around those placemaking functions um, because you know we would all like to do everything we would like a local authority that is able to see an improvement in everybody's lives and make sure everybody's got the opportunity to to do what they need to do in their lives but you know, the pressure on our resources at a local authority level are massive. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we want to do all of this stuff, but actually our resources only enable us to do a certain amount of it. So it's hard choices. What is the right thing to do? Uh, and being focused in terms of what we're able to do rather than promising too much and under-delivering. I'm a great believer in let's do a smaller number of things and do them exceptionally well. And as far as regeneration and placemaking economic development in the district's concerned, that's where I firmly believe we need to be. Um, absolutely, we'd like to do you know 10 things but we haven't got the resource to do 10 things. So let's do two or three things really, really well, which will have a long-term embedded impact on, for the people of Wakefield. And what are those two or three things going well, to be? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? Yes. And I, I can sit here with the benefit of not being an elected politician, being able to kind of say that, you know, elected politicians who ultimately are the ones that need to make decisions. And, you know, we are as officers there to advise, they're there to make the uh, actual decisions. 
don't necessarily have the luxury of being able to go right we're only going to do two or three things but we can advise them as best we can on what they should be um one of the things i'm particularly passionate about is the concept of um how an economy um works for the people who live there so the theory around uh, creating a well-being economy now for, for the, the kind of underlying, I mean, this is the economist in me kind of kicking in now. I mean, the, the underlying assumption about how an economy works is is around growth. A, a, for an economy to work, it continues to need to be able to grow, uh, to be able to redistribute wealth, etc. Everybody gets a piece of the pie. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with that economic theory, but the, the problem is it, it, it sometimes forgets the people which an economy is there to work for, which is actually the public in themselves. And the challenge we have at local authority level is whilst we can write the best possible, nice, fancy, worded economic strategy you've ever read, it will probably say the same as most other local authorities. And it will chase this mythical pot of gold at the end of the rainbow around GVA growth um, or some other kind of economic term, which nobody can really relate to. You know, if you ask the the man in the street in Wakefield, you know, what, what, what do you understand about if we said, well, we're going to grow the economy of Wakefield over the next five years by 0.25% of GVA, they, they can't relate to that. It's absolutely meaningless to them. It means absolutely nothing. What they're bothered about is, can my kids have a better standard of living and opportunity than I did? How can I get a job? How can I improve myself? How can I get to the job once, I, once I've identified it? Have I got the transport to get there? Am I living in a place where... It gives me those life opportunities where I feel safe, secure. I've got re- green space and I feel part of and pride of the place I live in. That's the sort of stuff which matters to people and matters to their well-being. And whatever we do at a local authority level, as the last, even the last week has proven in terms of interest rates rising again, whatever we do around economic growth will pale into insignificance what happens on a national level. The Bank of England takes a decision to raise interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point or more. That will wipe out whatever we're able to do in terms of economic growth and influence at a local authority level. So we should influence and do things where we have a genuine ability to shape people's life opportunities and focus on those things rather than setting some ambitious target which we can never achieve or never meet. So mm-hmm. I'm keen that we start to move the dial in terms of what we choose to invest in as a local authority and what we focus on as Wakefield, less about growth being the end outcome we're trying to achieve here. That will happen. You know, we get our plan making right. Growth and investment happens as a result of it. What we can therefore put our time and money into is initiatives which actually genuinely benefit people on the ground and their life opportunities. And that's something I'm quite passionate about. And what are those? Well, this is something with piece of work we're doing at the moment and we hope to kind of uh, look at throughout this year. Now, the council's just gone out to have a big conversation with its residents. Yes. Uh, the, f- the biggest public consultation we've ever done, mm-hmm. which is try to focus on the positives. Because when we go out and often speak to residents, it's often a you know, a a negative thing we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Instead, we've gone through a process of what's called appreciative inquiry, which is said, what do you like about the place you live in? What would you like to see more of? So Mm -hmm. focusing on the positives. And that is going to help shape and inform um, 
a refresh of our economic approach over the, uh, the the rest of this year to focus more on economic well-being. And what I'd like to see is, is focus on kind of, the, you know, again, picking up the point I made earlier about fo- doing less is more. What are the two or three missions we really need to go after? Things such as how can we ensure we have an integrated, adequate public transport system? You know, evidence has shown that unless you ha- can access, op- access opportunities, um, then your life chances are drastically result, uh, reduced as a result. So things like transport, but how also how can we recognise the fact that we are having an ageing population? There's huge economic and career opportunities for people within adult social care. So how can we support people to diversify and go into that career path as well, which will also support us as a local authority. Uh, so those kind of issues we want to look at, those that really quite focused things to which we we believe will make the biggest impact on people's lives but as i say that's going to be a process that we go through over the next kind of six to nine months really so just interestingly on that last point about adult social care i mean that's one of the industries that's absolutely on its knees it's struggling to recruit people aren't going into the industry because you can go work at a supermarket Mm. now for more money it's easier work how do you as a local authority support that industry? How do you get that industry out of the crisis that it's in now? Yeah. Um, well, that's the million dollar question which every local authority is wrestling with in the minute. And it, it always, with public services, always comes down to resource at the end of the day. You get out of it what what money you put into it. And um, and it, it's, it is at, a, adult social care provision is at a crisis point across the country. It needs national level intervention. It's not something that each local authority can solve in itself. Uh, but saying that, um, we, we have an opportunity, you know, we have a huge amount of adult social carers, which we try and recruit uh, on an ongoing basis. And how can we make it as an attractive proposition to school leavers and people in Wakefield as possible as a, as a genuine career route? And not only a genuine career route, a career route which has got stability and long-term potential for them as well. So these are the kind of things we're talking about on a regular basis within the council, really. We hope you are enjoying this episode. Don't forget to hit follow on your chosen platform. Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but is your business in desperate need of a lick of paint? An out-of-date website? Branding that just isn't a true representation of your business? Looking for fresh new video content, animation, live streaming, a new podcast, and content that will grab people's attention and drive eyeballs to your brand? Starter Media can help. Get in touch today. www.stardermedia.co.uk Right, back to the podcast. From a business perspective, so obviously our members are SMEs, we have larger businesses, we have solopreneurs, we have new start businesses. As a local authority, as a team, um, economic growth team, what do you offer businesses? If they don't know what's available to them, how can you support our businesses? So um, obviously we see businesses very much alongside our residents as customers of the council in some shape or form because the the businesses will engage with the council um, in some shape or form across the authority and it's really important that we have a consistent high quality um, 
offer to businesses. So whatever access point they're coming into the council, there is a quality provision that's given to them in terms of the service that they're going to get. Now, a number of years ago, what we decided to do is, because there's always a little bit of a stigma about what kind of support a council can legitimately offer to business. You know, what do councils know about running businesses? And, you know, there was always that kind of reluctance for businesses to go, you know, the last last people they would ring up is a council if they want a business support they go to a you know their accountant or their business advisor or the chamber you know whoever it may be but um the council is always there it's a consistent voice and an organization and a trusted body um so we recognized that and therefore decided actually they need we need to kind of rebrand ourselves a little bit so mm-hmm. Like many authorities do, um, we've got Wakefield First, which is the business-facing part of the organisation. So um, at its heart is a core team of experienced business advisors that sit within the economic development team, which is one of my teams. And that provides uh, support to businesses at whatever size they are. Uh, We also provide support to investors who are looking to come into the district as well and help them relocate, find facilities and and recruit staff. So Wakefield First is there as a front-facing service which the council offers to business. Um, But it also helps businesses navigate within an authority as well because we are a complex organisation. And if somebody rings up, Joe Bloggs Jeans or whatever it may be, and says, I've got a problem with my um, trade waste bin I don't know who to speak to Wakefield f- first can help them navigate within the authority because we are a complex organisation you don't know necessarily who to pick up the phone to mm-hmm. sometimes so Wakefield first is is the kind of first navigatable point for them to come into the council and speak to us Okay, so that's obviously the team that I came from. It is. So I'm, I'm quite in the know of what, <laughs> what we can offer there and I've got to say that it's definitely worth contacting the team Um I've got to say that running a business throughout the district for over 20 odd years, I thought that all the council did was empty the bins <laughs> and I stand corrected because obviously I've, I've been part of that team. So how, as as two separate organisations, we've got Sparforths, we've got the, the local authority, obviously, how do your paths cross? So we, we talk about collaborations on the We Are Wakefield podcast and we have members come in and talk about how they've collaborated. So how have Sparfus collaborated with the local authority in Wakefield, Adrian? Local authorities have a, have a statutory duty. They have a, a duty to have a vision. We don't call it a vision. We call it a local plan. And we shouldn't, we should call it a vision. Mm-hmm. But you, Wakefield Council has a vision for the district and it has to have a vision for the next 15 years. And a vision has to come from the community that it serves. It can't be something that is done by those from outside, nor can it be done wholly by the local authority. So the local authority says, we are going to create a vision. And what does that vision mean? It means how many homes do we need to provide for our residents? How do we? How many uh, square meters of employment space do we need to provide for people to work in? And then, how many people can we reasonably expect to attract to our city and our surrounding towns? And how many might we reasonably expect will want to go elsewhere? So it's complicated maths in all mm-hmm. this, as you will try and anticipate and predict how people might uh, move to Wakefield District and move away from it. 
So that's the mechanics of it. So Wakefield then has the, the underlying mechanics of the maths, and then it goes, but we've got some ambition. We've got some real aspiration, but we want to know whether the private sector will come on that journey with us. And depending on which local authority you work, and we work in 30 odd local authorities, depending on which local authority we work in will depend whether or not the private sector and the public sector are on the same page. So the local authority might say, we're on for business. Come to us and we'll go, you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> You've got the wrong attitude. You've got a negativity that comes through from the leadership of the officers. Um, and the private sector will go, no, we'll invest and we'll channel our energy somewhere where we are welcome. Mm-hmm. So we look to those authorities that have got some ambition, some fire in the belly, some optimism, a sense of vision and purpose. And Wakefield is one of those. I'm not just saying it because I live here and I'm a resident. We're based here. It genuinely has. It has got a sense of, uh, it's got a sense of ambition and aspiration. It's got energy and uh, and it's got quite a lot of drive for change. And it's good at dealing with change for reasons that Mark touched on earlier about the d- decline of mining and all the rest of it. So it's, g- it's good at change. It's good at being ambitious. So the private sector then says, whereabouts in the whole of the UK do we channel our efforts and our energies? Let's find authorities where we can do that. And, uh, and once we've found that, you then say to the local authority, will be saying, well, tell us, do you want to invest? Do you want to build uh, offices or shops or residential or, or so on? And then our, our, our role is to say uh, to the local authority, and as they're preparing their local plan or their vision, is to say, well, we actually think that land over there is a good strategic site. It's well located. It's got a good infrastructure. It's got a community that wants change. Uh, avoid that site over there because that site over there the community is highly resistant to change it's got really bad infrastructure the private sector don't even want to go there so it's a dialogue between the public and the private sector uh, trying to identify where as part of a 15-year vision the private sector wants to be but we don't always get it right the private sector sometimes we may want to go on the easy sites Mm -hmm. and go into those locations where the most money is to be made and so you end up with a creative tension robust debate and it is a robust debate sometimes about well actually we would like the, the private sector saying we'd love to be there and the local authorities going well actually no that's uh, that's not an appropriate place for development and so you end up with this um, um, this process of conversation which is done in public it's done transparently and it's done through what's called an examination in public process whereby ultimately all those robust debates are had in writing and face to face um, all these exchanges between the public and the private sector and eventually after three or four years you find you've come up with a joint vision which is neither owned wholly by the local authority nor owned wholly by the community or the private sector it's a mashup of everybody's interests uh, a compromise mm-hmm. but hopefully it's bold and ambitious and aspirational enough as a compromise that people go we can get behind that that's exciting um, so that's how we work with and sometimes against, but mostly with Wakefield Council, mm-hmm. and uh, and you end up with change. So when people see maybe a large urban extension, a large expansion of Wakefield to the east, Wakefield East, which we were closely involved with for over 20, 15 years, uh, these very large-scale sites, they don't happen by accident, they don't happen overnight, they happen as a result of years and years of debate. I mean, literally years, not months, years of conversation. We would like to build 2,500 houses to the east of Wakefield. It's Greenbelt. Are there any better places to build two and a half thousand houses which could bring better economic and social benefit to those people who are going to live there? 
big debate. It's a long debate. Um, and then and the local authority will look at, well, actually, if we're going to build 2,500 houses in Wakefield, is the east of Wakefield the best place to do it? Or should we be doing it north of Wakefield, west of Wakefield, south of Wakefield, um, and so on? So there's lots and lots of conversation. And it's a good conversation. I say sometimes it's robust and sometimes there's quite a lot of tussle. But ultimately, you end up in a place where you go, actually, it's probably the right decision, that. Uh, and then de development occurs. You know when you've got it wrong. You know when we've got it wrong as a private sector. And you know when the local authorities got it wrong as a public sector organisation when nothing happens. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I, I think... Reflect on it. It's, it's, it's the importance of those checks and balances, I think, between the public and private sector that Adrian talked about there. And, um, and, and people sometimes do get frustrated. You know, these, as Adrian said, these things take years. They genuinely take years, not only to develop the plan in the first place, but then for anything to happen. You know, I talk to many people about making change happen and regeneration and schemes do genuinely take years to come to fruition and that is no fault of any one party it's because things are done in a particular way to ensure it is that compromise and negotiation which adrian talks about to make sure that each party as part of that process and transaction can see a benefit at the end of it, mm -hmm. whether it's us wanting to ensure that there is appropriate benefit or safeguards for our residents, whether it's the private sector wanting to ensure that actually at the end of the day, there's enough profit margin in it. Yeah. It is a process of negotiation and compromise throughout the time. And, and it, that takes time, but it's the right thing to do. And it ensures that in most cases, the end product is the right end product and it succeeds you know uh, i know in this country we're always kind of lambasted a little bit in terms of the fact that we are very bad at big infrastructure projects and if we we're in china something would have been built by now mm. well, there's a reason for that in the fact that actually in this country we do have a well-controlled and developed planning system which ensure all interested parties do not um disproportionately miss out or, or negatively benefit them that's not the case in places where it's centrally controlled like places like china yes they they do have the benefit of getting things done very very quickly but it comes at a very high cost and that very high cost is usually to people um who are on the wrong side of it but you know we have the benefit working alongside people like adrian uh, who are professionals who understand the importance of ensuring compromise and schemes are developed in a right way and, 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 and they've they've come about in the right way uh, rather than just being knocked together and we're expected to roll over as the local authority and accept anything the private sector says. So yeah. it is a it is a very much a two-way process planning. It's, it's quite comforting that it's such a robust process because as residents, you hear people saying, oh, there's another new housing estate popping up. Are there going to be enough doctors? Are there going to be enough schools? You know, how are we going to accommodate all these people? Mm. Are the roads going to be a nightmare now? So I'm assuming there's been very much debate about all this and it's a very considered um, operation when these things happen and that people can be rest assured that these that the infrastructure around that development has been considered and will be put in place. I, I think the challenge that we face is that because these things take so long to conceive, 
to assemble the land, to promote the land, to have the conversations. We have, neither the private sector nor Wakefield Council ever have that sense of absolute certainty that the funding for the schools, the primary schools, the primary care, the toxic surgeries, the roads, the infrastructure, the junction improvements will be available at the moment at which the plan is adopted. So we might, um, we've had a scheme over in, um, just outside Dewsbury, we've been working on for 17 years and it starts on site next year. Wow. It'll be 18 years from mm. start to end. Mm. And in that time, we have had economic peaks and economic troughs. Mm. We have access to government funding to put infrastructure in that then stops. Yeah. yeah. And so you so you start off, I, I can honestly say in all my career, in 4,500 projects, we've never set out with the intention of not to deliver. But the problem is you get, life gets in the way mm. and um, different political cycles get in the way. Yeah, different absolutely. governments come and go. Mm. So you might have a, a government of one particular colour mm. who are very pro investment in a certain area mm -hmm. and might prioritise maybe affordable housing. Another government of a different colour might prioritise a different type of housing mm -hmm. tenure. So you end up with all these things changing and in that 17 or 18 years we've been through different governments, different politics, different access to funding, different economic cycles. So we wholly recognise the frustration that the communities have because we might start on day one saying we would love to do this development, put a nice road in, put a new primary school in, put a new secondary school in, uh, with absolutely every intention of doing that and making the land provide, make a provision for the land um, and all the economics at that moment in time totally stack up. Yeah. And then the world changes yeah. mm. and suddenly inflation gets in the way interest rates go up suddenly the private sector can't find the funding to do its bit the public sector's going well we've got no money either mm. and so the things which started off with the best of intentions from both the public and the private sector just stall mm. and then people get frustrated mm. uh, and think either the private sector is over promised yes. or the, the public sector is under delivered and yeah. actually the reality is it's much more subtle and yeah. nuanced than that mm. yeah. or not held you to account for the promises in the first place Correct. and they kind of said well why are you ensuring they build this infrastructure but again life exactly as Adrian says life gets in the way thing other things happen which kind of push you off course and make you have to reevaluate the scheme or what, what you propose in the first place um but the, these things just take time you know uh, very rarely does a scheme end up looking like it was first envisaged mm. yeah you see i want to go on to more optimistic things so I want to talk about, so both both of you are, are coming along to We Are Wakefield to, to talk to our members shortly. Adrian, you're speaking at the August event yes. at Wakefield College. Mark, at the September event. I know the venue, but it's not confirmed yet, so I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> it will be confirmed this week, hopefully. But so if people have got questions that they want to ask you about particular things, then obviously you'll be available at those events, which is which is great. I want to talk about the future. So what great things are going to happen? I mean, I've, I've listened to the Regeneration show on our media partners, Rhubarb Radio, who we work very closely with. And I've heard all these little tidbits of things that are going to be happening in Wakefield. Give us something to look forward to, okay. Mark. Come on. Well, it, it, it's, it's already happening and, and things are genuinely happening at the moment, you know, despite... You know what, like what we've already referred to, and the kind of doom and gloom around the kind of national economic position, yes. and it, it, it does have a massive impact. There's no getting away mm -hmm. from it. You know, interest rates go up, construction prices go up. You know, when we've got government funding to deliver schemes, and we've got a, a particular funding envelope we have to stick within. 
and yet construction costs go up kind of by a third. Absolutely. It completely blows away. It makes it and, very and difficult. And I don't think people realise that that has, that has a knock-on effect for you as a local authority yeah. as well yeah. as the man in the street. Yeah. You know, I, I think that people do tend to be quick to criticise. Yeah. From that perspective. And, and it does stall schemes. It does happen as a result of it because... You know, again, we're not. We haven't got an endless pot of cash. We can just deal with that viability gap, mm. which has all of a sudden appear, appeared because of interest rates kind of going up. Um, but saying that, our commitment is we're trying to keep um, on track with the schemes we've currently got on the books. And probably, again, this comes back to the point I made earlier, which is focusing on a small number of big things and getting them done. Mm. And there's a huge amount going on and a huge amount to be proud of really in Wakefield uh, not only now but what's going to happen over the next 18 months two years we've seen if anybody's been down to the Hepworth recently and looked over the hoardings and seen the fantastic transformation that's been going on at the form of Rutland Mills now called Tile Yard you know you'll be genuinely impressed the transformation that the team have, have delivered down there with support from the council over a number of years is fantastic and the types of businesses that's attracting is is going to be genuinely transformational for for the place. Um, so we're already the phase one is a, is about complete. Uh, phase two is shortly going to be underway, partly delivered yes. by some of the leveling up fund uh, investment that we've got from government. Um, so that will continue to develop over the next twelve to eighteen months. So people will continue to see that 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 develop. We've also got a huge amount going on in the middle of of Wakefield itself. So um, if anybody parks uh, at Rishworth Street uh, or Gills Yard Car Park, which I do when I drive in, they'll notice that it's all hoarded off now, not allowed to go in. And that's because the civic quarter development is about to start, which will see the development of a number of mews and townhouses on that site there, but also the redevelopment of the former uh, police station, um, and the courthouse just opposite the road, op- opposite the courthouse, uh, opposite the police station. Again, number of high quality apartments and cafes going in there. Uh, so again, that part of of the city will be transformed in the next twelve to twenty four months. Just down the road from that market, former market hall, just near the bus station, being converted at the moment. That's very exciting. It will yes. be very exciting, yes. and uh, you know, and again with these schemes. Uh, Regeneration provokes opinions either way, strong opinions mm. about well, why the council doing that or wasting more money on that. The scheme there will be, uh, again, transformational for that part of town, bring a a big and arguably iconic, whether you like it or not, building back into use there. It's a massive vacant space we've got in the hall, which has already been used for some fantastic events over the last year or more, attracted huge numbers of people and visitors into Wakefield. We're kind of going to convert that into further arts and cultural activity space, uh, which will hopefully be open by next spring. Um, so that project's already underway. So spades in the ground there. Spades are about to go in the ground in Civic Quarter. Spades are already in the ground down at uh, near the Calder at, at Tile Yard. Uh, we've been knocking down the former ABC Cinema down Kurgut mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that's going to be a new um, housing neighbourhood down there. Again, trying to tackle some of the issues which we may come back to around 
um, needing to consolidate the amount of retail space we've got in the city centre, trying to remove a, a number of uh, retail units down there because we've got too much retail space in the city centre and that's going to be a massive challenge for us over the coming years to try and consolidate the amount of retail space so we've got. So what do you do with that? So we've, we've, we've got the changing face of retail now, haven't we, which is come about for various reasons you know we, we started seeing the loss of the high street before the pandemic and then with this massive shift online we have got a lot of empty units throughout the district as a whole not just yeah. within wakefield yeah. city center so do we just replace that with housing do what do we do how do we get that balance within our towns and cities well, I'm, sure, I'm sure adrian has a, a strong view on this as well and um i think for certainly from my perspective um it it's not necessarily about replacing a building with a building because there's only so much you can do in terms of right we'll replace resi with sorry we'll replace retail with residential for example yeah. or we'll replace it with some leisure use and that's something we, we, we are we do need to do in wakefield there is opportunity for further leisure provision in there um and so we're looking at that at the moment but there's only so much you can do i think in terms of replacing one building use with another and Something that I think we're going to be looking at is around urban green and how we bring more public open spaces into the middle of the city as well, but also into other towns. Uh, so Castleford, funded through the town's fund, we're going to be expanding Henry Moore Square there, more public is open space. Is that still happening? Yes. Right, okay, because there's been a lot of debates about Castleford, mm. about the area around the the riverside yeah. there and the town centre. We've just seen the loss of Marks and Spencers, which is massive. Yep. So what's happening with Castleford? So obviously, yeah, you mentioned Marks and Spencers. It's a really disappointing decision, but something that they've took nationally. Um, yes. And, you know, anybody who listens to the news, reads the papers, there's not many months that go by before another nationally significant retail chain takes a decision to remove themselves from the high street mm -hmm. and there's others having that same discussion at the moment uh, so i think the, the thing to point out there is there's only so much we can do to push against national trends and corporate decisions that are taken it's how we react to them yes. and diversify and adapt as a result of it so uh, that's absolutely something we're, we're looking to do in castleford uh, uh, looking at henry moore square creating a new event space there, um, animating that space with uh, cafes that are willing to spill out and, uh, and, and other activities, but as well linking the middle of Castleford better down to the riverside. Um, and we're in the process of uh, discussion, the, the potential acquisition of a number of properties down there at the moment and opening that up for public open space and, and urban greening as well. So again, using the space in a different way because you know i i'm a firm believer in in our town and city centers we need to create places where people first and foremost genu genuinely just want to spend time because it's a nice place to be mm -hmm. regardless of whether they want to come and spend the money in a retail outlet whether they want to come and have a drink or have something to eat or go and see a film if it's a nice environment in terms of the public realm and they feel safe and they just want to come there and just hang out, that is the first thing we need to, to provide them with. Um, so, you know, that's why I think absolutely around public open space, urban greening is the way to go rather than necessarily going, we've got one building, we need to replace it with mm -hmm. another. Sometimes mm -hmm. that is not the answer. Mm -hmm. I, I wholly agree. I think what we're seeing 
I suppose the older one gets, the more you get comfortable and recognise change. And we have seen profound periods of, of change and we assume that the retail environment, the size of our retail offer our towns and city has always been that way. And it hasn't. Growing up in Wakefield in the 70s, the retail core was small. Mm. Um, and it then had a massive expansion in the 80s and into the 90s. We saw the retail park expansions and we therefore assume that that is how it has always been. And it mm. hasn't. Um, the thing, the common factor for towns and cities of all kinds of cities is they are constantly changing. Yeah. And if we if we look over a 50 or a 60 year period, everything that Marcus said absolutely resonates that what you're really saying is uh, what we're all saying is that change is inevitable. Change occurs. It's just it feels more profound this time because it's happened so quickly. Mm. Uh, but it is no greater over a space of a decade than, than the change that occurred in the 80s and the 90s with the, the retail expansion. Mm. It's just that it's happened over a shorter period of time. And we keep coming back to the role and purpose of towns and cities. What is the role and purpose of a town and a city? It used to be a place of commerce, then it became a place of retail, uh, and now it's a place of social interaction. It's a place where you go to be with other people, mm -hmm. because despite all our access to Zoom and Microsoft Teams and, and online video conferencing and all the rest of it, we like people like people. Yes. And you can't get a cup of coffee online. You can't have your hair done online. You can't have your nails done online. You can't uh, go to a live performance online. We need and like to be with other people. And those towns and cities that recognise the human-to-human -human contact as being valuable will flourish and prosper. Mm -hmm. But those who, uh, who wed themselves to this idea, well, the purpose of a town centre is to be a big retail environment, ultimately, I think, are going to miss out uh, and uh, and find themselves in a place where people don't want to be. Mm. It's all about creating place and space where people just want to be together, yeah. um, uh, safe, secure, mm. overlooked, and, and very importantly, 24-7. Yeah. That's one element that we struggled with in the north more than some of our larger cities. So if you look at Birmingham and London and Paris and you go into continental Europe, you'll find the cities are vibrant 24-7. Okay. Therefore, they feel safer 24-7. We historically have chosen for many reasons to to live in suburbia for best part of 50 60 years and we have expanded our towns and cities we have lived in our in myself included uh, living in our sort of little executive houses on a housing estate with our our, um, our 2.4 children our 2.4 cars and all yeah. the rest of it and um, we've chosen to live like that but it is quite unusual when you look globally mm. And I, one of the trends that is emerging, that as we uh, we all travel more, we all go on holiday abroad, and we all go to big cities on, on, and, and so on, we start to recognise there are other ways of living. Mm. And I think therein lies the solution for Wakefield, for Castleford, for Pontefract, and for most of the Yorkshire, which is instead of spreading outwards and into open countryside and into rural agricultural land, there is a role for that, but not as much as probably there has been in the past. Right. That our intention really, and this is the conversations we're having on an ongoing mm. basis, not just us, but others as well with, with Wakefield Council. How do we de in de intensify our living so that we live denser? And both part, political parties, both Labour and the Conservatives, are both saying gentle densification. What they mean by that is how do we get more people living in our town centres? Because people living in our town and city centres will use primary care in our towns and city centres. They'll go for a food and drink on an evening in our town and city centres. Uh, they will animate and activate 
And so instead of uh, corralling people, putting them in maybe older person's accommodation 10 miles away from local services where people become socially isolated, mm. instead of saying to our young people, you can't afford to get to the housing ladders, we've got some cheese, cheap housing stock 30 miles away from a bush route, we're going to stick you over there. What we go is, hang on a minute, we're missing a trick here. Let's look at these denser, more urban environments, create vibrant places where you don't need a car, where you've got access to a railway train, mm. where you've got access to a bus service, where you can pop on a train into central Leeds. You yeah. don't need to have three cars, two cars, whatever. Uh, and th- this is the emerging trend, which is which is bold thinking for the north. It's quite bold for Wakefield. I think even. it's very bold for Wakefield because I had a conversation that touched on that. Actually, I was I was down at Tile Yard um, last week and speaking to Kerry there, who who runs runs the event space down at Tile Yard, and she was saying she spent a lot of time in London, and people are saying, "Oh, have you got any parking on site at Tile Yard?" And it's why are people around here so reliant on being able to park their car exactly where they need to be? You know, I think it's a very alien way of thinking because I don't know whether it's because we've not had great infrastructure with public transport in this district, but why do people need to park and get out of the car and walk through the door of where they need to be? So I think there's going to have to be a massive shift of mindset there as to how we stop using private cars and shift over to that public transport thing and things will have to improve massively. And it is a gradual iterative process and that process, it's a cultural shift. It's about people going... Um, challenging the way we've always assumed we're going to live. It's mm. about all of us, uh, yes. um, 57, saying, I don't need to live in a house in suburbia. I mm. can live in a, in a more compact accommodation in the city centre and have probably a better sense of well-being and activity in my mm. life than I would be if I had to um, drive in everywhere. Yeah. And, and young people, my, my children as well, looking at saying the way that we were taught to think in the 80s um, is, is changing we have to live more sustainably. Mm. We're all recognising we need to live sustainably. Sustainable Again, doesn't mean just putting... challenges, isn't it, that exactly. we're facing It's there. not about putting yeah. a solar panel on yeah. a roof, which no. unfortunately some people have interpreted sustainable living as exactly that yeah. and having an electric car. The way to live sustainably is to actually live in our cities, to not have a car mm. rather than have an electric car, um, to not have solar panels on the roof, because actually if we are living in properly designed passive houses, mm. you don't require a solar panel because yeah. the buildings themselves were designed not to require a, a, a fraction of the energy that we now need. Mm. So it's about thinking differently, and those are the bold changes that we need yeah. to bring about. Massive mindset changes, Absolutely, isn't it? yeah. And I think particularly for people in the north, in our district yeah. because of the challenges we face with that. And that's a massive challenge for you as a local authority, mm. isn't it? Without a doubt. I mean, and, you know, it puts pressure on the on the services we provide as a result of it because, you know, we car parking is usually a very um, polarising subject, let's mm. put it that way, because as a country we are... Very, oh, it's a, no, as a, I mean, humans are genuinely kind of very uh, attached to their cars and uh, don't like the idea, majority of people don't like the idea of needing to walk too far from getting out of their car from where they need to get to. Yeah. I'm sorry, that is just not uh, going to be the way that we need to live in future if we are serious about tackling some of the issues around climate change because, you know, ex- exactly as Adrian said, you know, Electric vehicles in themselves solve any part of the problem, 
But actually, the full solution is making sure you do not need to use a car first and foremost, because you live somewhere where you're able to walk or easily get to where you need to uh, to work without needing to hop in a car first mm. and foremost. And there has been a lot of debate nationally recently around this concept of 15 minute cities or 15 minute towns or neighborhoods, whatever way you want to refer to it. And um, but at its very heart, that is about ensuring, like you, you know. That uh, how places were planned 40, 50, 60 years ago, that you live somewhere where you can work, but actually you've got all your core services within a reasonable distance. The way uh, planning has gone and our places have developed over many years now is because we've become so over-reliant on the car. You, It's the expectation that it's not unreasonable for you to travel 10 miles to go and go to the doctors or the dentist or the library or school. Um, we need to rethink that. Uh, and it's a bit of a controversial subject because people do see it as a bit of an infringement or claim it's a bit of an infringement of their civil liberties. You know, oh, crikey, you know, we're not going to be from barred from walking out. You know, if we go 15 minutes away from my house, I'm not going to be allowed to go any further. And some kind of very odd fringe debates that have been going on in certain parts of the media and politics around what that means in practice it's not that at all um that's only playing to a certain narrative really that it this is it's very hard about going back to first principles which is around places should be designed properly so that you are able to access everything you need to access in order to live and, and succeed in life within a reasonable distance without having to travel for miles that's going to be the big challenge we're going to face we're very we, much going back yeah. in time aren't we Yes. When we started the business in the 80s, um, there was a conversation around uh, Parisian cafes. Right. And they said they were going to do um, outdoor seating in London, around Leicester Square, I seem to recall. And they said, oh, no, it'll only ever work in Paris. You'll never get away with it. And then London said, no, no, we're going to have, we're going to have pavement seating. So they rolled out pavement seating. This was, was early 80s. Then Leeds said... We're going to have pavement cafes because they've got them in London. They say, no, it'll work in London, but it'll never work in Leeds. And they rolled them out in Leeds and people use them. And I remember a debate in Wakefield uh, with um, a, a cafe owner who said, I'm going to put some pavement seating out. And they said, it'll never work. It'll work in Leeds, but it'll never work in Wakefield. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. The cultural change happens mm. gradually. Yes. And, and I think this is the same. I think we've got to find, if it, if it works in other parts of the world, it will gradually migrate here. And, and although we may be amongst the, 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 the last to change, it doesn't mean the change won't come. It'll mm. just mean it's taking a bit longer yeah. to happen. And I want to just... I'm quite excited for, for the job that I do is that we're getting some event space in Wakefield. So we've got Tile Yard now. We've been crying out for these as Cedar Court's not in action, um, as, as, as everybody knows. And we're struggling for our space for big events in Wakefield. I struggle every month to find a great venue to bring our mob. Um, but we're also getting a fantastic new venue where the old market was which you touched on um a short time ago um how about people traveling in from outside to come to these great events that we can now have in wakefield where do they stay um so at the minute it's limited choice i think absolutely we will all have that. <laughs> that uh, yeah and these are the questions i'm asked yeah you know? absolutely and, and you know we we have this all the time, you know, we go and speak to our colleagues at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park, for example, or the Hepworth, because, you know, these are world-class 
attractions yeah, on our doorstep, which yeah. pull people in from a long, long way mm. away. And when they come here, they kind of go, okay, where am I going to stay? Yeah. And they don't stay in the district because there isn't the kind of provision of high quality hotel space to be able to do that. Um, so um, there's, there's a few exciting plans um, which we hope um, to be able to say a bit more about in the coming months. Um, one um, is right down the old Westgate station. Yes. Um, and it's part of our proposals through the Towns Fund that we bring forward um, a new hotel down there, which again is a fantastic location. It's right next to East Coast Mainline. It couldn't mm-hmm. be any better. Yeah. So, you know, a good high quality three, four star hotel down there. Um, there's already plans down uh, alongside as part of the phase one of the tile yard development for a boutique type of hotel down there. Um, so again, we're talking to uh, CPP, who the developers are on that at the moment. Um, but also um, a bit further out, um, we've got Breton Hall as well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, this was probably largely forgotten about because again, it's one of those projects which have taken so long to come to fruition for various reasons. Um, COVID got in the way and uh, has delayed things. But we've got a development agreement in place with with Rushbond, who are a uh, well-respected regional developer responsible for the Channel 4 headquarters in, in Leeds. Um, and to bring forward Breton Hall as a, a high-quality uh, boutique hotel offer based around um, the surroundings of, of the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. So bringing in the kind of artistic elements of that as well. And, you know, we're, we're continuing to have discussions with, with Rush Bond and their partners uh, on the scheme there. And we hope to be able to, uh, shortly after the summer, probably September, October time, be able to go public with what I think, uh, and it's a real shame I can't talk about it, because I think it's really fantastic, a really fantastic opportunity there, which is going to do something... Uh, bring something completely unique to the north not only wakefield right. but the north oh. um so something really exciting there in terms of a hotel offer so watch this space watch this space i'll leave I you with that hanging th- i hope you'll come back it. and tell us about it oh, yeah, don't worry i won't need to tell you about it it'll okay. be all over the place so. okay oh very exciting oh, yeah. no, you very heard exciting. it first here yeah excellent so talking about events talking about wakefield as a destination celebrating Wakefield. We're gearing up now for the Wakefield Business Awards. Once again, we had an absolutely awesome event last year. Um, on the back of that, we've got this great new event space at Tile Yard, which is going to be the um, destination now for the Wakefield Business Awards this year and for many years to come, I hope. Um, Wakefield First, our headline sponsors, why do you think it's so important that we celebrate success within our district for our businesses? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it brings that sense of pride and recognition that we are doing some fantastic stuff in the district. And, you know, and the, some of the businesses I've met over the last two and a bit years have been absolutely extraordinary. Some of the things they're doing across the district. And it's, you know, things like this, things such as the We Are Wakefield Business Awards is absolutely the the, the perfect opportunity to be able to celebrate some of that and we shouldn't be shy about shouting about our successes Mm -hmm. um you know we we could be accused of being probably a little bit modest uh in terms of what we achieve in wakefield and these type of awards gives us the opportunity to break out of that and really shout about some of the fantastic things people are doing and it's only right that wakefield council through wakefield first 
are you know front of the queue in terms of celebrating that success and sponsoring the award so absolutely we're, we're really looking forward to it and i'm sure we'll hear some really inspirational fantastic stories on the night in terms mm-hmm. of what some of the businesses are up to yeah and you're one of the judges as well mark so you're looking forward to no that. pressure do you want to give my address out if anybody wants to kind of you know <laughs> uh, it's on the website people can people know yeah, who yeah. you are people know you're yeah. involved no don't worry yeah. they take any bribes <laughs> <laughs> no i think it's, it's a robust process yeah. is, is what i have got to say there and i mean adrian you were at the event last year and you saw a community feeling it was it was i think uh, john humes the md of haribo for example who's, who returns as a judge this year he says that it was quite unlike any other awards event he'd been to i i think i would agree with that i think the other thing is because we're not a university city yes and I we've think there is a about ta- that quite yes. a lot i think yeah. there's a danger that we allow ourselves to talk ourselves down quite a bit which puts off our young people from staying here yes and the challenge that we face is making sure that those who have been brought up and educated here and been to school here that they see just how successful the district is and can be and yes. don't wander off somewhere else thinking the grass is greener mm-hmm. so things like business awards are a really good way of signaling to younger people stay in wakefield it's actually a really great place yeah. to be and um, be careful if you do wander off elsewhere and go elsewhere thinking it is, is better chances are you'll end up coming back again in due course and realize actually the place that you started out is a really good place to live yeah absolutely yeah. and that's what the awards basically does it's sort of it's it's a subliminal signal it's a small signal but it's an important signal Mm. Um, and if anything if we're building on the success of last year and and going forwards trying to ensure that that success is projected into all the secondary schools so that the young people at that moment where they're making this what do I do in my life now Mm. just get this this constant little drip 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 of positivity about it's a great place to be yeah absolutely I mean we're working more and more with education providers and connecting industry and business with the education providers that we've got across the district which is really encouraging um having input into curriculums making sure that they are industry appropriate making sure that the young people are learning the skills that they need to actually go into employment within the district Mm. and hopefully retaining our talent so that's quite an important part of what we do at at we are wakefield as well so thank you so much for your time today we end this podcast by asking you for your top tip for 23 so I've given you this in advance. You've had plenty of time to think about it. So Adrian, what would your top tip for 23 be? Be patient. Be right. patient. I think, especially if you are younger and you're seeing some of the headwinds and the challenges, inflation and interest mm. rates and getting access onto the housing market or just getting a roof over your head, it will get better. Um, and make sure that you allow yourself enough time to realize that because the media would have you believe that it's all doom and gloom that the world is ending and it's all uh, negativity and it's not um it w- there is a lot of reasons to be optimistic about um next year and the year ahead and the year after that especially in the Whitefield district um but patience is the key to that and not rushing to make a spontaneous decision uh, in the moment um, and, and in a, potentially making a really big mistake this mm-hmm. year only to realise that next year is probably going to be a really good year. And that's in life and business. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Patience is a virtue. Correct. Great tip. Mark? Mine's actually not too dissimilar to be honest with you and it's about don't make short-term decisions. Um, 
And, you know, as, as we've seen for many, many years, um, economies and uh, societal changes go in cycles. And um, we're at a difficult period at the moment, but, you know, there will be light at the end of the tunnel. And it's very difficult for a lot of people at the moment. And we see that in the authority, you know, the support we provide through helping through people through poverty and um, cost of living crisis at the moment. And it's very difficult for people to see that light at the end of the tunnel. But Mm -hmm. it's about making sure whether it's personal decisions or it's business decisions, that you don't make knee-jerk short-term decisions which you'll come to regret plan for the future um and i was going to say but rishi sunak kind of nicked my line on this last week or earlier this week when he said um hold your nerve mm. um and and that's it, it is very true though um albeit for different reasons that people do need to hold the nerve at the minute we're having to do that in the authority in terms of some of our big regeneration projects hold your nerve stick with it and you'll, you'll come through the other side and um, you know that's why the importance of making like long-term decisions rather than short-term knee-jerk reactions at the moment in the current climate. That's comforting to hear. Um, I do know a lot of businesses at the moment that are really struggling, that are really trying not to make short-term decisions. Just a last piece of advice from you, Mark. What? How? How do they look to the future when? The future, the short term future looks so bleak. How yeah. how do they ride that storm? Yeah, and you know, it's it's hard for me to say that it will necessarily be okay for everybody. Mm-hmm. It won't, and I think we need to recognise and have that honesty with ourselves that you know some businesses who are struggling at the minute won't see it through. Um, but you know how how many times have we seen businesses fail and then people come back and succeed and learn from that mistake and it's how you pick yourself up at the end of the day and we're here at the council to help people as much as possible through that journey as well and if part of that journey is going through a process of closing one door and opening another then we're there to help through Wakefield first and through whatever help we can provide as a local authority to our residents we're, we're there to help at the end of the day. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. It's been a great episode. Adrian Sparforth, Mark Lynham, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The We Are Wakefield podcast was produced by Starder Media. Proud We Are Wakefield community members. Starder Media is a content production house based in Wakefield, West Yorkshire, with over a decade of experience creating video, animation, live streaming, podcasting, graphic design, and so much more for clients of all sizes across the UK. Starder Media, creating content to wow your audience.